Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, how are you doing? Good to see you guys. Thanks for coming out in the middle of the tundra. And for those of you who decided to stay home, I'm glad you're there as well. And if you're joining us as a guest, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn with me back to the passage that Pastor Jack Tennant read to us at the outset of our time together, Revelation chapter 2. We start a brand new series. I meant to start this last week, and it snowed. I was looking forward to starting it this week, and it snowed, and I'm about ready to move to Florida. Amen. Yeah, I'm telling you, but it's so good to see you here today. How many of you have been distracted before, even by something as simple as, oh, I don't know, weather? Weatherman tells you that this is all going to be moved out of here, and it's going to be above freezing by 8 o'clock, and so you go, okay, full steam ahead, and the next thing you know, you're standing out here in the north parking lot at 6.30 in the morning and, you know, three inches of snow, talking to your facilities manager, wondering what you're going to do. Those, those distractions come. Sometimes they're necessary distractions. We have to stop what we're doing and the focus that we would have preferred to have had and, and kind of grab onto something that needs to be dealt with and addressed before we can get back on to, to what it was that we were focused on. Sometimes distractions can cost you a day of work. Sometimes they can cost you a week. You ever had one of those days where you're like, I, I'm just never getting anything done. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I'm behind the eight ball, as they say. And then for some of us, it's just those innocent sorts of things. How many of you have ever gotten out of the parking lot, in the parking lot at Target, and you walk into the store, and that was the moment you realized, I do not remember why I'm here. Yeah? How many of you maybe had that experience, or even didn't have that experience, but you walked out with everything you came for, and you realized, I don't remember where I parked the car. Distractions, right? This can happen in your spiritual life as well. Your walk with Jesus is filled with distractions. And most of the time, the things that challenge us in growing in our faith, and this can happen to entire churches, by the way, uh, is, is we can get distracted. Most of the time, our enemy is not really interested in a full-on frontal assault. He's a smart dude. He knows we're probably going to pick up on that, that this is a satanic attack. It's, it's those little bitty distractions. And here's the thing about distractions. If they're not dealt with appropriately, if we do not stay on focus, distractions turn into misdirection. What merely sidetracks you for a moment or a day or a week turns into basically full-on permanently being off course. And when that happens in your spiritual life, it can be deadly. And so we're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at the various ways that Satan seeks to give us misdirection, tempt us with misdirection. I have a feeling, particularly as I, as I survey the last 12 months, and we've all been tempted with distractions, I cannot tell you how incredibly proud I am of this church body. Those of you watching from home, those of you here in your seats, and the things that we've accomplished together. A couple of Tuesday nights ago, we were sitting, Pastor Joe Richardson and I, downstairs 
in the food distribution in the middle of COVID, what used to be the children's worship area, now there's just you know thousands of pounds of food that gets handed out every single week. And he looked at me, Pastor Joe did, and he said, look at everything these people of God have done in the last year and, and all of the things in the face of which we got them accomplished and he's saying this certainly by the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the credit here goes to the Lord. It's to the glory of God that these things get done. And then he said this, imagine, Pastor Joel, what we're going to do when we come out from under this thing. Imagine what God could use us to do. I absolutely believe that, which is why I also absolutely believe that it's time for a series like this. Because if our enemy's going to do anything, he's not going to punch us in the face or in the throat. It's not going to be a full-on frontal assault. It's going to be a temptation to get off course. And so we're going to look at several of those uh, over the next several weeks. And, and basically, we're going to use the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to kind of guide us because there's really nothing that Satan could tempt us with today that those seven churches hadn't already faced. And so we're going to look at all the things that Satan threw at those congregations. We're going to look at things like uh, an, an over unhealthy focus on safety and security. We're going to look at an over focus on, on apostasy, this misdirection. Well, maybe this isn't such a bad teaching or that isn't. We're going to look at false views of tolerance. Not that we shouldn't be tolerant of other people, but, but what does that look like? And, and, and what is that temptation? How could that get us off course? We're going to look at things like spiritual complacency. We're going to look at distractions like, oh, I don't know, exhaustion. You, ever, you felt exhausted at some point in the last 12 months? I would imagine somebody in this room or somebody on the other side of that camera has said at some point, maybe I should just give up. We're going to look at that temptation as well. But we're going to need to start where the scriptures start. And that brings us to this big word, fundamentalism. That was the distraction that threatened misdirection at a congregation called Ephesus. Now, before I get too deeply into the text, let me give you a little historical excursus here because we need to talk about what we're talking about. And when we talk about fundamentalism, we need to make sure that we're, we're defining this in the way that we need to because historically, fundamentalism wasn't a bad thing. It was actually a very good, very useful thing. And, and, and in large part, it's much of the re that movement is much of the reason why you're sitting here listening to someone teach and preach who believes the Bible to be the Word of God. That's not bad. That's good. In fact, that's necessary to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So let me give you a brief overview of where it started and where it's come from. And, and, and to do that, we got to go all the way back to 1912 when there was this ideology known as modernism that was beginning to sort of infiltrate and influence in a really heavy way, particularly a lot of denominations within mainline Protestantism. Modernism was the philosophy, the ideology, if you will, that, that simply said, you know what, that the scriptures, that we, we can probably hear God from there, but, but in the sense that they are actually, every syllable is the word of God. Really, the Bible is more a collection of people's religious experiences, and if we realize that, then we'll also understand that those miracle passages, none of that really happened, but those things can point us to some real spiritual realities. There's sort of a watering down of the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. And so that was modernism. And in reaction to that, there was a number of, of theologically conservative scholars that published a group of 90 essays called The Fundamentals. You see an ancient copy of it pop up here about any moment, and it's, it's called The Fundamentals. And so this, this group, from the publication of this pamphlet, began to grow. And it included giants like 
B.B. Warfield and G. Campbell Morgan, and most notably the father of this movement, a man named Carl F.H. Henry, who together with Billy Graham founded a magazine called Christianity Today. You may have heard of it. All of this comes out of this fundamentalist movement, and these leaders feared that theological liberalism in Christian institutions and Christian churches would eventually leave us with a Christianity that was just in name only. They keep stripping away at this and stripping away at that. And we want to be careful to guard the faith that Jude tells us was delivered once for all to the saints. That was a good thing. That was something that every single one of us should be thankful for. And so they preserved through that movement the following five fundamentals. Number one, the inerrancy of the scriptures. And if you're not sure what that term means, it's, it's a modern term. It hasn't really been used except within real, roughly the last century or so. But it basically is a modern way of expressing a very ancient belief that the Bible can be trusted. That because it comes from God, there's, there's nothing in there that shouldn't be in there, and there's nothing missing that should be there, and that every bit of it is reliable and trustworthy. Number two, the deity of the Jesus of history. That we don't just believe there was a man named Jesus who walked the earth. We believe, contrary to our Muslim and our Jewish friends, that he was God. That's what sets us apart from those other people of the book. Otherwise, we're monotheists. We, we believe that God has spoken in texts. But this is, this is the distinctive nature of Christianity. Jesus is God. Number three, Jesus was born of a virgin. Number four, the blood atonement of Jesus for sin, because we read elsewhere in the scriptures that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. And number five, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And if you take those five things together, they constitute fundamentalism in its seminal form. And if that's all fundamentalism is, then I'm a fundamentalist. Every pastor on our staff, every non-staff pastor who serves as an elder here at Covenant is a fundamentalist. And if they're not, they don't work here right? Because that's what we believe. That's what we believe. And we believe out of concern, just like Billy Graham, just like Carl F.H. Henry, that if you begin to remove some of those things, it's just sort of the first domino that begins to collapse on itself until finally the only Christianity you have left is in name only. So here's, here's my big point giving you that history. The problem isn't necessarily the theological posture of fundamentalism. The problem came in later years as this movement started to morph into something that was characterized by things like anti-intellectualism, right? Well, I, I, I don't believe this. I don't believe that. Uh, education is stupid, all those kind of things. Arrogance, spiritual arrogance and pride because we've still held on to these essentials. We're actually better than other people who don't. But we're the only people who have the truth. And so anti-intellectualism, spiritual arrogance gets mixed in with this sort of radical form of exclusivism that encourage cultural isolation. Don't tinker around with culture. Stay inside, right? There was this old build an ark mentality, you know, just like Noah and the ark. We're all going to get in here together and it's raging outside in the culture. Don't go out there. It's dangerous. It's bad. The world's a dark place. Just stay in here. I know it stinks, but at least we'll be dry. Right? That, that was sort of the, the, the mentality around culture. And so today, when people hear the phrase fundamentalism, they don't reflexively think of someone like Billy Graham or Carl F.H. Henry. They tend to think of, of really five more characteristics. Number one, truth without love. We just, we just yell at people all the time. 
Number two, the Bible replaces the Holy Spirit. I'm going to unpack that one in, in just a bit when we get into the text. Number three, cultural isolation. Again, it's dark out there. It's dangerous out there. Number four, every relationship and interaction you have with the culture must be defined in an adversarial us versus them way. And number five, repentance from sin but not from religion. In other words, I, I, it never occurred to me that my own religious practice might have some corruption in it that needs to be repented of. And those same patterns, I would surmise and submit to you, are, are what we find in seminal form in this congregation that's being addressed in the first seven verses of, of Revelation chapter 2. There was a congregation at Ephesus. Now, I had an opportunity about eight years ago, so I'm going to just show, I'm just going, it's not a slideshow, I promise, but I got to show you one picture, to actually visit this amazing ancient city. You can see behind the dumb-looking dude in the Harley-Davidson t-shirt, that's the ancient library at Ephesus. Oh, I was having a nerdy kind of a day. It was just awesome. That was sort of the center of this ancient city. And when it really, when we talk about Ephesus, we're talking about this really important strategic city in the region, mainly because of the harbors. That was kind of the entry and the exit point. People would come from all over the known world to trade goods and services and ideas and all kinds of things, a major cultural center. And so when people landed at the docks, they would, they would encounter a, a population of around a quarter of a million people, which was huge for the ancient world. They would also find all kinds of commerce and, and business. They would find art and culture really best embodied in a massive amphitheater that I got to stand in. That, that, that max capacity for that thing was 25,000 people. And in the middle of all of that was something called the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven great wonders of the world. It was 67 feet high. It was three times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Huge edifice dedicated to a fertility goddess who was worshipped by going into the temple and sleeping with prostitutes. I'm thinking there's probably some dudes invented that religion. I'm just suggesting, right? And so this is, this is the world that, that was Ephesus. And it's in the middle of this context that Paul walks onto these Ephesian streets for the first time in the spring of A.D. 52, and Luke actually tells us in Acts 19 that God was working such extraordinary miracles among Paul, and there were so many people that came to Jesus that it actually started to negatively affect the economy of the city. You're like, wait a minute, I thought Christianity was supposed to bring lift. to Well, it is, but sometimes what it has to do is collapse some businesses that are actually causing more problems than they're solving. And, and the business at question here was run by a man by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius had a silversmith business. And what do you imagine a silversmith would do in a city that is slammed full of idol worship? He built idols. So you've got all these people coming to Paul bringing their silver, melting it down because they're genuinely repenting of their pagan worship. And Demetrius, this starts to affect his pocketbook and that of the other silversmiths, and a riot eventually breaks out and ensues because of people coming to Jesus. And a church gets planted, the church at Ephesus, the one we're talking about today, with such impact that it completely altered the entire economy of a major city. This is how the church at Ephesus gets its start. And 43 years later, Jesus now, through John, writes a letter to them. I think about that historical timeline, and it, it, it causes me to wonder about us. Our, our church is 35 years old this year. 
So what, what, what does this look like? In eight, We're eight years away from being the same age Ephesus was when they received this letter. In eight years from now, what would Jesus say to covenant? And Jesus says of Ephesus, I have something to say to them. So this was a church apparently still had a really strong presence in the city, but it also had some course corrections to make. How do you avoid the misdirection of fundamentalism? Because as we look in these, in these verses, you're going to see that's precisely what is threatening the body of Christ at Ephesus. Let me give you four ways. It starts by affirming the centrality of our faith. Jesus says in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus, shouldn't surprise us if we know him for who he is, starts with himself. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's recentering this entire congregation, reminding them of a couple of things. They're not only church, which again, a little bit of pride in that, in that fundamentalistic mentality. We're the only ones that really have the truth, and everybody else is really less than us, and we're exceptional, and we're the exception to the rule. He says, no, nope, there's seven more. There's, there's, there's six more. Seven stars, seven golden lampstands. You might have been the first to have been established in this region, but you're not the only ones. So check your arrogance at the door. You're still a lampstand. Now, why would he... Why would a church like this need a reminder like that? Why would it be? Because we're going to read about the things they get right in just a moment, but I wonder if it could be that with all of their activity, they had forgotten a central sustaining truth, and that is that Jesus should be at their center and Jesus should be at their circumference. He is everything. Everywhere you look, there he is. As some of you have taken my advice and you read your children the Jesus Storybook Bible and you that, that, that tagline on the bottom of the cover is absolutely true. Every page whispers his name. And you have apparently forgotten so let me remind you who I am. Let me remind you that there are seven of you. You're not the only one. Let me remind you that my hands are on those lampstands and you continue to exist and you continue to provide a witness in that city and you continue to do what you do in my name, not because of special circumstances or because you're somehow extraordinary, but because I allow it. I let this happen. I am giving you the privilege of serving me. Maybe they've forgotten that. Years ago, I remember Bible teacher Beth Moore talking about the intertestamental period, those 400 years between the close of what we call the Old Testament and, and the, the beginning of what the Gospels describe, the life of Jesus. And how in the world could, you, could, could God's people have gone from where they were at the end of Malachi to, to a place that by the time of Jesus, you have the Pharisees, you have, the, you have all these various uh, groups, all these different sects of Judaism led by these various personalities and, and ideologies, but, but every single one of them, they, they were radically different from each other, but the one thing they all held in common was they were all incredibly oppressive on the people of God. How does that happen? It must have been 20 years ago I was listening to Beth, and this is something she said, and I thought, this makes sense. She said, because God had already said from Amos, I'm sending a famine of the words of the Lord. You're not going to be able to hear from God. And then she said something interesting. She said, if you'll just sort of trace out the history of the church, it kind of becomes obvious that when there is no fresh, intimate, relational connection with God, our reflexive thing is to gravitate toward legalism as a substitute. 
Let's just make up some rules that we can enforce that will make us feel better about ourselves, that will make us think ourselves faithful. And, and I think about that, and, and within evangelicalism, there's a couple of different, couple different temptations there. One is to go full-on heart and the other full-on head. Full-on heart is all touchy and feely and floaty, and I want the hair to stand up on the back of my neck, and it, it doesn't even really have to be true. I just need to feel good, right? I need to be encouraged. I need to be... And then that's a dangerous thing. But what's happening at Ephesus appears to be the opposite problem. It's full-on head. It's memorization. It's knowing all these things. It's thinking yourself special. And here's the big idea. Jesus wants your head. Jesus wants your heart. He wants all of it. And apparently, you have a church here that's very strong on doctrine, but they've forgotten the purpose of it because, as we'll see in a moment, they've left their first love. And so their first love, because he has not stopped loving them, reintroduces himself to them. Don't forget that I'm the reason you're here. Don't forget that I'm the reason you exist. Don't forget that you have a mission. This is how you avoid this kind of misdirection. Continually affirm the centrality of Jesus that here at Covenant we continue to say we are all about Jesus. We are only about Jesus. We are always about Jesus. And because of that, we will secondly continue to practice our faith. He goes on in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, he says this specifically about a particular group. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there's a couple of things he's commending them for here. The first is toil, exhausting work. You've been steadfast. You've got to think about it again. Temple of Artemis at the center of the city. Any and every kind of pagan activity around them. Temple prostitution, emperor worship, all of the cultural pressures of conformity, and they apparently did not move an inch. They didn't. They withstood grueling cultural pressure. And in doing so, they were a lot like their founding apostle. You go back to Acts 19, you'll see that, that Paul, during his time at Ephesus, set up something called the, in the, a place called the Hall of Tyrannus where he would lecture and preach daily. And if you add up, if you just do some simple math, it was somewhere around 3,100 hours of teaching that this man did in order to plant this church in the middle of all of that paganism. And, and so much of that toil apparently also invo invo involved exposing false teachers, just like the, the multitude. If you have a city like this, You've got goods and services and people and ideas that are moving and coming and going through a major city. Religious ideas will also flow freely. They will. And the Ephesians stood firm. That, that's a, a good principle for us 2,000 years later. We live in the United States of America. We have religious freedom. We should. Our Muslim friends have religious freedom, and they should. Our Jewish friends have religious freedom, and they should. Our Buddhist friends have religious freedom, and they should. This is what freedom is about, exchange of ideas, but that doesn't mean the body of Christ accepts all of those ideas. There's a, there's a distinction that needs to be made here. And so all of these things flowed freely, and the Ephesians in the middle of it continued to be able to separate truth from falsehood, like their brothers and sisters in Berea 
in Acts chapter 17, they developed the skill of examining what they were taught. More specifically, Jesus mentions those Nicolaitans in verse 6. This is an early sect that, that splintered off from the church, much like a cult would do. And Jesus says, I hate what they do. You hate what they do. That's a good thing. You know, hate's a strong word. I get that. We shouldn't always use it. There are times where we need to refrain from hate, but hate is not always a bad thing. It's okay, brothers and sisters, to hate what God hates. And sometimes people get under the, come under the delusion that a, a Christian who truly loves people will just never call out what is false. So we'll just let that go, right? Let's hear everything. Well, no, because some things are stupid. Some things are stupid. Other things will send people to hell. So no, we will not hear everything. This is not what we do. We're not going to do that. Scripture uses the metaphor, that with, and I think that's where this text is finding itself within this wider context of the metaphor of sheep and shepherds to speak of people and pastors and the metaphor of the wolf to speak of false teachers. And a good shepherd does not coddle wolves. He fights them and kills them, not literally, but he deals with them and he does that for the sake of the sheep. Apparently the church at Ephesus had good shepherds, had some good elders guarding the flock, guarding the faith, holding fast to that which had been once and for all delivered to the saints. So why am I telling you all this? Well, for this reason. Here, here's the bottom line on Ephesus. We're about to get into some major, major issues that they faced in Ephesus. But here's what I want to make absolutely clear. It's what the text makes clear. Absolutely none of their problems were caused by the pure lives they were living in the face of immorality, None of their problems were caused by their unquestioned orthodoxy in a city filled with false teaching. None of their problems were connected to their faithfulness under fire or their diligent service. Brothers and sisters, that's simply called being a follower of Jesus. You believe what he tells you to believe. You obey him when he tells you to move. Continue to practice these things. So we reaffirm the centrality of Jesus, not so we can be feely and floaty and say, well, as long as it's about Jesus. No, no, Jesus has given some specific commands. Jesus is Lord. Jesus governs every part of my life. And therefore, every part of life must be addressed in light of that centrality. So affirm the centrality of my faith. Continue to practice my faith, but, but now here's, here's the difficult part. Even a solid, orthodox faith can be corrupt. It can be corrupt, no matter the expression. And so Jesus goes on and tells the church, remove corruption from your faith. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. You remember that metaphor I used earlier about the reason you're there is because I allow you to be there? I, my patience might run out. I might very well take your witness out of the city unless you repent. Here's what's happening. He's commending them for the things that are good, and simultaneously he's revealing the true condition of their hearts. At that moment, their hearts apparently had been dry, gotten dry. They'd gotten tired. And this is the, really the greatest weakness of what I would call modern fundamentalism. All head, no heart. There's a text in 
Deuteronomy chapter 28 that says this, God's people are about to be punished. They're about to be sent into exile. And, and this is what we're told. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. How many of you have kids that don't want to do their chores? Yeah, a few hands went up really quick. That was funny. How many of you have ever said to your children what I have often said to mine when they start to gripe and complain about not wanting to do the dishes or not wanting to do the clothes or not wanting to do whatever it is they're supposed to do, vacuum the carpet, change the, cat, change the cat's litter, do whatever, right? And I have to remind them, this is why we had you, because we didn't want to do this anymore. I'm kidding. What do I normally, yeah, I heard that. I... <laughs> Normally, what do I say? I, I bet you guys have said some version of this before. Hey, kiddo, you don't have to want to do it. But you do have to do it. You ever said that to your kids or something like that? Here's the thing about God. He just took it up a notch. You don't just have to do it. You have to love it. Yeah, it's, it's hard because we, we, we live in a Western culture that tells us things like you can't help who you fall in love with and you guard your heart and all this kind of crap and everything else. And God just told us right here, I have the authority to command your emotions. I have the authority to expect affection. This is a command from the Lord. And this is where Ephesus has dropped the ball. Big time. You've lost that. You've lost that. And so the answer, he says, is twofold. Number one, remember, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. I can imagine uh, even Paul, if he were still in that city at this point, but even Jesus saw all of this happen from above, and John is speaking with the words of Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, remember when you first brought that idol to be melted down? Remember how you didn't care what it cost you? Remember how you didn't care about the cultural marginalization? Remember how you were willing to lay everything down for me? That You've lost that. You've lost that. You don't do that anymore. I want you to remember from where you have fallen, and then I want you to repent, which is do what you did at the beginning. And this works out in our own human relationships in that way, doesn't it? My, my children don't look forward to me reluctantly playing with them. All right, I'll do it. They, they don't look that. My, my wife does not look forward to me reluctantly taking her out. Yeah. By, by the way, dudes, Valentine's Day is coming. It's a week from today. Public service announcement. Better get it done. You're welcome. Okay. But, but yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. And so, and so if, I, if I show up Sunday, next Sunday night with a couple dozen roses and a box of candy and I tell her I'm about to take her to dinner and her eyes light up and she loves it and she expresses her thankfulness back to me, what's she going to think if I just go, yeah, well, I have to? You know, I said some value. Your pastor, Bobby Johnson, made me promise in front of 400 people that I would love and honor and protect, so there. That's not going to work out very well for me, is it? No. Why should we think that the creator of the universe demands any less from us than our spouses? 
And this is what he's talking about. This is the dire warning from this letter. You can be orthodox, moral, upright, respected. You can do everything these men and women did and still have an unregenerate, cold, dead heart with no love for Jesus. That corruption has to be exercised from your life. How do you do that? Well, that's the final thing. Follow the Holy Spirit who empowers your faith. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That's a reference back to our first parents and the fact that eventually all of creation will be restored and we'll find ourselves there again. But you make it there by hearing what the Spirit says. Now, the leading of the Holy Spirit is not mutually exclusive from the teaching of Scripture. They go hand in hand. This is another one of those areas where in, in, in avoiding one extreme, you don't want to fall off into the ditch on the other side of the road. If you truly want to hear the Spirit of God clearly, you need to get very, very, very familiar with your Bible because that's where he speaks. Furthermore, he doesn't speak in contradiction to anything you find in Scripture. He just doesn't. And so that's, that's the issue here. Spirit will not lead you to do anything contrary to Scripture. He works in, con in, 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 he works in congruence with the Scriptures. This is why when people have sat down with me over 28 years of ministry and, and they say crazy stuff that I know is just not supported by the Scripture, I can say with confidence, the Holy Spirit did not say any such thing to you. Right? Pastor, I know that, you know, I, I know Scripture says no one knows the hour or the day, but I think I've figured out the year. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Pastor, I know marriage is a holy thing, but I just, I just feel like the Spirit of God is telling me to leave my spouse. No, the Spirit of God hasn't told you that. Well, how do you know that? Because the Spirit of God would not say something that stupid. That's how I know. He wouldn't. And because he doesn't speak in contradiction to his word. So when we talk about listening to the Spirit, we're not talking about recognizing the fact that the Spirit of God and the written Word of God work in sync together. Here's the error of some modern fundamentalism is that too often it replaces hearing the Holy Spirit with mere knowledge of the Bible. And brothers and sisters, that is not the same thing. It's not. You can't merely say, I got, I got enough head knowledge up here, and therefore I know everything. Here's the promise to those who follow his leading. You will get the victory that God promises, and the end of that victory, it may or may not come in this life, but there is that tree of life waiting on you. If you want victory, you need more than what you've got now. That's what he's saying to the church at Ephesus. You know the scriptures really well, and that's not bad. That's good. You have defended Orthodox faith voraciously in the middle of a culture that is just throwing ideas around like popcorn, and that's not bad. That's good. But with all of your knowledge of the book, you don't know its author. And that's, that's what we're being called to right here. You, listen, read the Bible, ingest the Bible. 
Live in the Bible. But it's not enough merely to know the book. The book was written so that you could know the author. And that is what we're talking about here. Follow the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers your faith. And and I'm going to tell you, that is the cure to any fundamentalist misdirection. It's chilling to me when I think about how this church started. Told you that at the outset of the message, how God just powerfully worked through these people over four decades. And these are the last words that Jesus speaks to them. And and we hear nothing else after this. You got all that just potent dynamite level stuff going on in Acts 19 and 20. And then then you get this one word in, in Revelation 2. And then it's like the radio goes silent and we never hear from them again. And the only tangible evidence we have now that this church existed is a fourth century edifice that now sits on top of a mountain outside the ancient city of Ephesus. It was destroyed in the fourth century by an earthquake that decimated the city and it was never rebuilt. No more lampstand. No more lampstand. And if there are Christians now in ancient Ephesus, we don't know about it. That's what's left of it. When Christians are misdirected by fundamentalism, this is the end. You know how to overcome it? Love. You have left your first love. Don't leave the heavy theology. Don't leave the desire to maintain purity and truth and all that. Those are things that I commend in you, but without love. That kind of sounds like a passage, doesn't it? If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a clanging symbol. That this is how you you stop this misdirection. And so, and and again, in much the same way that you would with, with a personal relationship, when you're annoyed by a frustrating spouse, you just got to think of your husband on your wedding day, right? When those brats living in your house get entitled and you're just like, I'm just ready to kill one of them. And like, not even, I don't don't even have one of them in mind. I just want to just kill one of them at random, right? As a parent, what happens? You, you, what happens to that anger the minute you remember the first time you held them? When you're exhausted and you're serving needy people as we've been doing for almost a year around here, really even pre-COVID, but COVID just sort of put that on steroids. And and when when you're just exhausted, you're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And you begin to see them as people that Jesus died to save just like you. And when you love Jesus first, if he's your first love, then that, that love just spills over. you got endless amounts of it, right? You don't, don't ever get in ministry because of your love for people because you won't always love people. Trust me. You won't. You're like, that was a horrible thing to say, Pastor. Well, come try pastoring a church for a little while. You won't. You won't. I'm just being honest. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying I haven't had to repent several times. I'm saying you won't. Your love has to be for him. And then that stuff overflows. And now you, you, you don't just repent daily. You do it because you want to repent because you know that's the avenue to escape from this form of misdirection and get back on mission and do, as the Bible says here, the works you did at first. Some of you may need to do that today. That, that might be your call. Maybe you need to remember 
How Jesus came to you when the needle was still in your arm. How Jesus came and healed your marriage by healing your heart and bringing you to himself. How you were willing to lay down, as we're going to see symbolized in baptism here in just a few moments, to completely lay down everything about your old life so that you could get the new one. And somewhere along the way, you lost that. You need to return. And Jesus will be there waiting on you. And for some of you, you just need to do that for the first time. You've never known Christ. If you're watching us online right now, you can go to connect2covenant.com and you can let us know, this is something I want to do. I want to know more about what it means to, to follow Jesus. And our pastors, deacons will follow up with you this week. And one of the greatest privileges we have around here is telling you what that means to be a disciple, to turn from your sins, to put your faith in his death and resurrection, have your sins forgiven, and exchange that old life for a new one. But whether it's for the first time or whether it's maybe there's some people in front of me right now that just need to return to do the works you did at first, the invitation is clear. Bring it all to Jesus. Bring it all to Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that your word teaches us and the challenges that it gives us because you love us. Father, we'll see that aimed at, at other churches as we move through this series together, that you discipline those that you love. And so, Lord, may we not get off course. May our church stay centered as we have been. And we thank you that by your grace we've been able to do that. May those individual lives that make up this body refuse to be distracted to the point of misdirection. And Father, I pray that they would get their lives back on course today by returning to the works they did at first, by remembering that first love, by reigniting a passion for you that years from now, Father, by the time we get to our 43rd anniversary, perhaps we can hear not the same words that Ephesus heard, but maybe the, first, the, the same words that Smyrna heard or the same word that, that Philadelphia heard where there was no condemnation and no critique, simply, I love you and you have done well. And would you please continue to be faithful? Father, make us a faithful people and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.